And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's make sure that we are prepared to study, concentrate, We do that under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches us that whenever we sin, we violate the absolute righteousness of God. As believers, we can never do anything to lose our salvation because we did nothing to earn our salvation. Salvation is totally by grace through faith. When we trust in Christ, He is the one who saves us. But when we sin, it still violates God's righteousness, so it... It's like a family relationship. We, we're not kicked out of the family. and just that our fellowship with the Father is uh, broken. And so that has to be restored. And that is done simply by admitting, acknowledging our sin to God the Father alone. Whenever we sin, as David said in Psalm 51, against thee and thee alone have I sinned. So we only confess to God alone through silent prayer. And instantly we are forgiven. And we, are, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our spiritual life and study the Word of God under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have provided for us a perfect salvation. Salvation that is not dependent in any way upon us, upon ritual, upon church membership, or any other human factor, but exclusively upon uh, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you have said in your word that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And with that, we receive a package of spiritual assets that is beyond uh, all comprehension. Father, you have given us your word to describe these assets that we might learn about them so that we can advance in our spiritual life. And Father, now as we continue our study of the Gospel of John, we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we learn about you and about the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that it may uh, encourage us in our spiritual life and motivate us to further growth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, this is the true Lord's Prayer, the 
prayer given over in Matthew that is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer is really the disciples' prayer because Jesus is answering their question, how do we pray? And in that model prayer, he says, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And, of course, Jesus never sinned, so that is not the Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer where Jesus Christ, the night before he went to the cross, goes into prayer, an intercession for believers, and we are told specifically what he says. So we are in the process of analyzing this very private communication between God the Son and God the Father. And in our study, we are learning some fascinating things about the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. Remember, the overriding principle here is that you cannot love someone you don't know. And if we don't know God, how can we say that we love God? Now, there's a lot of folks we all know who run around talking about how I love Jesus and how I love God and isn't God wonderful, but their knowledge about God wouldn't fool a thimble. They're impressed with the fact that they've had some perhaps emotional experience or they have generated some concept within themselves about God and that has impressed them so that rather than worshiping a God who has revealed himself objectively through the Scripture, they are instead worshiping their own uh, thoughts, their own concepts, and their own emotions. Now, when we get into this passage, we see some things about Jesus, about who he is, about his relationship with the Father, that tell us some remarkable things about who God is in his eternal existence. We've spent quite some time about this because in the very fact that Jesus has come before the Father in prayer is an act of obedience. It's an act of submission, and it tells us that at some level, Jesus is subordinate to the Father. Now, the question that was raised in the early church was just exactly what is the eternal relationship of God the Son to God the Father? What is the eternal relationship of Jesus Christ to the Father? As the early church fathers read through the New Testament, it became clear to them that Jesus claimed to be God, and as such, he was eternal. And they had to find the vocabulary to express that. And there were those who had come up, some false teachers that came up, specifically a man named Arius, who said that Jesus was not eternal, he was created by God. His catchphrase was, as we saw, was there was a time when Christ was not. And the result of that was a, the various teachers of the church gathered together at a town in Asia Minor outside of Ephesus called Nicaea. And there they formulated a statement called the Nicene Creed. Now, the creed is not authoritative. Okay, It's not the creed we go to to find our truth of doctrine. The creed is simply the way they, after studying scriptures, they put this together. The Bible is not a textbook on systematic theology. It was clear to one and all that the scriptures taught that there's one God and that Jesus claimed to be God. How do you explain that in other terms? So this was the, the, the way they wrote it out and expressed what the Bible teaches. Now, they are not reinterpreting the Bible. They're not establishing new doctrine. They're simply expressing, in in a theological terminology, what is clear in the Scriptures. And it's the second paragraph here that is the one we're looking at. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
begotten of the Father as only begotten. And that's the Greek term monogenes, the only begotten Son of God, that is from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created. In other words, they're expressing the fact that Jesus Christ is identical in essence to God the Father. His, his subordination to the Father, as expressed in this prayer, is one of his role, not one of essence. He is identical in essence to God the Father, and therefore he is undiminished deity. Now, we have studied that in detail, all of the passages in Scripture that deal with the deity of Christ, his claims to be God, his claims to be eternal, his claims to be one with the Father, that he did the works that only God could do, that he forgave sins as only God could forgive, that he performed miracles, for example, the changing of the water into wine at the uh, wedding feast at Cana, which only God could do. It's an act of creation demonstrating his full deity, that he is not somehow subordinate in his essence to God. And this relates to the doctrine of the Trinity that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one in essence, but three in person. They have three distinct identities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus prays to the Father, let's review the first three verses of chapter 17. We read, These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Now, this is a key concept in this whole prayer is glory. And glorification means to bring honor and respect to God. Even as thou gavest him, referring to himself, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. This is the delegation, one of the roles of Jesus Christ. He is the one who bestows eternal life. He does that not because of who we are or what we have done. Salvation is totally dependent on who Jesus Christ is. So if Jesus is not God, he is not perfect. He does not possess perfect righteousness. He would have been born a, a man tainted by sin. That's the purpose for the virgin conception, and virgin birth. For the sin nature, we're told in Scripture, is passed down through the male, not through the woman. See, the male is designated as the leader in the home, as the head of the human race. Adam was created first, the woman was created second to be the helper to the man. And so it wasn't Eve's sin that caused the fall of the human race, it was Adam's sin that caused the fall of the human race. In Adam, all die. So sin nature is passed down through the male. Well, what happened in the virgin conception is that uh, God the Holy Spirit supernaturally fertilized the ovum in Mary's womb so that by bypassing a human father, Jesus does not inherit a sin nature from a father. He is born impeccable. That means he is without sin and he does not possess a sin nature. Without a sin nature, there is no imputation of Adam's original sin, and Jesus is born perfect. Therefore, he is born as Adam was created without sin, and therefore he is going to pass the tests that Adam failed, and because he has perfect righteousness because of his deity, 
He can go to the cross and die as our substitute. This is what the early church fathers realized. This is why the doctrine of the deity of Christ is so important. It is not because it's something that was formulated by some, some theologians, but because it's clearly taught in Scripture, but there's a reason for it. And that is that if we are to have salvation, we must possess the same righteousness that God possesses. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 65.6, we're told that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. So that man is born lacking righteousness. We are minus R. We lack righteousness. Even the very best that we do is called filthy rags. It doesn't say all our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. It says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. The very best that man can do falls far short of the absolute perfect standard of God. So Jesus Christ goes to the cross. There he pays the penalty for sin, which is spiritual death. Every single sin in human history is poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. He pays the penalty because, as the Scripture says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. He can then give his perfect righteousness to man. And at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father in his justice imputes, that means he credits it to your account, he credits to your account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that God's righteousness, the standard of his integrity, looks at the perfect righteousness we now possess and declares us to be just. So the righteousness of God is his absolute standard. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. So that when God's righteousness sees the Righteousness that we have imputed, it's Christ's righteousness that is now ours. God the Father sees that perfect righteousness and declares us to be just. And we are, that is what is meant to be justified by faith alone. When we trust Christ as our Savior, God the Father judicially imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. We are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we can have eternal life. So Jesus is the one who distributes eternal life at the moment of salvation, that he may give eternal life. That's the point of verse 2. Verse 3, and this is eternal life. How do you get eternal life? That they may know thee, God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Notice there is not salvation based on something else. It's based on Jesus Christ alone, and it is based on knowledge, not experience, doesn't matter how you feel about it, what matters is what God says in his word. Then we come to verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. So Jesus glorifies, that means he brings honor and respect to God the Father by being obedient, that is, carrying out the plan of God by going to the cross and dying on the cross for our salvations. Now, at this point, he is on the verge of doing that, and he has glorified God in his life up to this point, and he's, he will complete the mission on the next day when he goes to the cross. Then we come to verse 5. Jesus prays, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory of 
which I had with thee before the world was. Now, in the ancient church, as they grappled with an understanding of Scripture, the first question they grappled with was the question, what was Jesus before he came? Once they understood that the Scriptures taught Jesus was eternal God, that he was eternal, full deity, the next question they had to ask was, how did this manifest itself in time? In other words, we move from the question of what was Jesus before he came to what was Jesus when he came. What is the nature of the incarnation? How does the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ relate to one another? And what Jesus says here is that after his resurrection, he says, Glorify me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The question we should ask is, well, what happened to that glory during the time of the Incarnation? Well, in order to answer that, we need to go to a passage over in Philippians. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we will begin in verse 5. Beginning in verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God. Now, I want you to notice that word form. In the Greek, it looks like this. Is the word morphe. M-O-R-P-H-E. It's where we get a word like, English word like morphology. It has to do with the, the morphologies, the study of the forms of words. It had a technical meaning in Greek philosophy. Plato used it to talk about the ultimate ideal. The morphe. And so what it comes to mean is the essence of a thing, not just its external shape. See, when we use the word form, we think very physically in terms of an external shape. But that's just the opposite of how the Greeks understood it. Instead of what what made a thing what it was, wasn't its external shape, but its internal essence. And so morphe has to do with that internal essence. So Philippians 2... 6 says that although he, that is Jesus, existed in the form, that is the essence of God, being fully God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that's a contrast to Adam. Remember what happened in the garden? Adam is told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan, taking on the form of a serpent, comes to Eve and says, you know, the reason God said that was because he knew that if you did that, you would become like God. And she thought, oh, I want to be like God, so she grabbed the apple. And then, or whatever it was, the fruit, or pomegranate, probably a pomegranate, whatever it was, we don't know. So she grabs the fruit, and she eats. Then Adam comes along. Now, Eve is deceived, but Adam goes into it willfully. And she says, look, Adam, if we eat the fruit, we're going to be like God. So he thought that was a good thing, so he grabbed for it. Now, what we find in Philippians is that Jesus, in contrast to Adam, who grabbed for deity, Jesus has it, but doesn't grab for it. He doesn't grasp after it. 
He instead, verse 7, he emptied himself, and this is the controversial term, kanao is the verb in the Greek from which we get the, um, the noun kenosis, and this is a very famous uh, argument in theology over the meaning of kenosis, and it's called the kenosis problem. What exactly does it mean that he emptied himself? What it means is not that he gave up deity. If he gave up deity or he gave up any divine attributes, then he would be less than God. What it means is that Jesus, under the authority of God the Father, willingly restricted the independent use of divine attributes during the Incarnation. That Jesus, under the authority of God the Father, voluntarily restricted the independent use of divine attributes during the Incarnation. Now, he does display these within the framework of the plan for the Incarnation. There are times when he displays his deity. For example, I mentioned already the creation of uh, turning the water into wine. He reveals his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration when he's there with Peter and John. Uh, There is another time when he is, is angry, and you just see in response to the, Philist, I mean, to the Pharisees, and there is this flash of his glory that is revealed. And there are episodes like that, but he does not u- utilize his attributes independent of God's plan. He doesn't get off the cross like the, uh, uh, the Pharisees taunted him and said, if you're really God, why don't you get down off the cross? And he stayed on the cross because that was the Father's plan. That's where he paid the penalty for the sins of humanity. He could have gotten off the cross. He could have done anything. He could have snapped his fingers and all of the Pharisees would have been vaporized in an instant. But he didn't utilize his divine power apart from the plan of God because he had a task to perform in submission to the Father to pay the penalty for human sin. So he... The concept of emptying himself is the idea that he voluntarily restricted the independent use of his divine attributes. Taking the form, the next phrase, taking the form, and here we find the word morphe again, that essence, taking on the essence of a servant. He demonstrates, Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve by giving my life as a ransom for many. That term there, huper in the Greek, for, translated for, means substitution, to give my life as a substitution for many. He came to serve mankind by paying the penalty for our sins on the cross. So he voluntarily restricted himself. He didn't give up deity. He added humanity, taking on the form, the essence of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And this is the... Uh, Greek word, homeomati, which means the external likeness, the external likeness of man. He takes on humanity, but it's likeness. It's not identical. Why? Because man is fallen. He takes on everything but a sin nature. So he uses the word likeness. He's not identical to man, but he is, he is true humanity apart from sin. And then... In verse 8, and being found in appearance. And here's the word schemati. Now, this is in contrast to morphe. Morphe has to do with that internal essence. He is fully God. Whereas schemati has to do with the external appearance. 
the external shape of a man. He takes on true humanity and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the, what? Glory of God the Father. That's the point of the prayer, that Jesus is glorifying the Father by carrying out the task of, of um, salvation. Now, in the early church, they had a problem with trying to understand this, and I want to put a little chart on the overhead to help you understand this, because I think that by understanding some of the uh, missteps that were taken, it clarifies or brings into better focus our own understanding of the nature of Jesus Christ. The first... Turn my projector on here. The first... Give that a minute to warm up. The first view was called Apollinarianism. What happened after the Nicene Conference, and they asked the question, what was Jesus before he came? They had to ask the question, or they began to ask the question, what was Jesus when he came? Now, the first person to take a stab at it was a guy by the name of Apollinarius, and he got it wrong. And that was typical in the, in the early church, is that, that uh, you're trying to formulate some real technical theological verbiage, and usually you would make a mistake... People didn't know what the correct formulation was, they, but they knew what it wasn't. They could easily sp- spot a problem. So the first guy to come along was Apollinarius, and his view was that Jesus is a combination of undiminished deity put into a human body with a human soul, but there was no human spirit. Now, man is comprised of three parts, soul, spirit, and body, according to the scriptures. So what happens is you have a human body and a human soul, and the deity replaces the human spirit. Now, the problem with this is he's fully God, but he's not fully man. And so you have a, a, uh, a Savior that can't really substitute for man because he's not true humanity. So after a while, it became clear that that was not the right solution. Apollinarius was declared a heretic, and that, that formulation was rejected, and, and that's because it doesn't reflect what the Scripture says. Jesus is true humanity. He was born of a woman. Emphasize, he's son of man. All of these terms emphasize that he is fully man. The second person to take a stab at it was a, a bishop by the name of Nestorius. And his stab was that he had Jesus as undiminished deity and true humanity. But if you notice in the chart, I put a heavy black line between the two because he doesn't uh, have them in any kind. They're they're so separate that there's no unity of person. He has a Jesus who is two natures, divine and human, but also two persons. So you almost get like a multiple personality Jesus. And uh, that was declared to be heretical after a while. And the third person to make a stab at it was uh, Eutyches, and it was known as Eutychianism. And he, instead of going to the one extreme of Nestorius and separating the two natures so radically, he merges them. 
so that Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity, but it's really a mix. He's one nature and one person, and that's some, a third something. He's not fully man, and he's not fully God. Now, having gone through a couple of centuries of theological debate over the exact relationship of Jesus, they finally formulated the statement at the, at the Council of Chalcedon. There they wrote, they agreed that this is what the Scripture teaches, that we apprehend this one and only Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten in two natures. See, these are the two natures, undiminished deity and true humanity. And we do this without confusing the two natures. See, Eutyches confuses the two natures. That's the third one down. He blends them together. So that's the confusion that they write against. Without confusing the two natures, without transmuting one nature into the other, that's addressing that same problem, without dividing them into two separate categories. Now that takes us, that's the second problem. That's Nestorianism, where there are two separate categories and there's no unity of person. So they reject that. Without dividing them into two separate categories, without contrasting them according to area or function. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. So you have to maintain he's fully God, fully man, but there is a union. Instead, the properties of each nature are conserved, and both natures concur in one person, in one essence. So Jesus Christ then, the formulation, understanding of the hypostatic union, that's the term person comes from the Greek word hypostasis. That's where we get the term hypostatic union. It's the union of the, the two essences in one person. It is the union of undiminished deity and in, in true humanity in one person. They are not divided or cut into two persons, but are together the one and only and only begotten Lagos of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus have the prophets of old testified, and remember we went through many passages in the Old Testament showing how there were hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, and Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those prophecies. And the chances of that taking place would be about the same as um, uh, covering the entire state of Texas. Now, I was talking with somebody during the break about Texas, and people up here just don't have a frame of reference for understanding Texas. If you leave Brownsville in the southern part of Texas and drive towards Colorado, it takes you about uh, 20 hours before you get out of the panhandle. That's how far it is from north to south, and it's about that same distance across from, from Beaumont to El Paso. Uh, you can drive from uh, Dallas to Amarillo, and that takes about 10 to 12 hours, and, and you're still within the state, and you've left a lot of territory uncovered. So it would be almost three times the size, or probably two and a half times the size of New England. You cover the state of Texas four feet deep in silver dollars. You mark one of those silver dollars, and you stir the whole pot up real well, and then you blindfold somebody, and the chances that that blindfolded person is going to pick that marked silver dollar the first time are the chances 
that a hundred of these prophecies would come true in one person. And yet we know from the study of the Old Testament that there's over 200 prophecies given in the Old Testament that are literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was born in Bethlehem. He was of the tribe of Judah. He is a descendant of David. He was born of a virgin. And he was betrayed by a man for 30 pieces of silver, a man who was his friend. And we can go on and on through all of these prophecies. Jesus Christ fulfilled in his person all of those prophecies from the Old Testament. He is, therefore, the Messiah prophesied throughout the ages in the Old Testament. And he came for the purpose of redeeming mankind. Now, in the Old Testament, the, the, the concluding statement of the Chalcedonian Creed, Thus have the prophets of old testified, thus the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. Now pay attention to that because that's going to come up in the next couple of verses. Thus the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, thus the symbol of the Father has, the symbol of the Father has handed down to us. And that's an allusion to God the Holy Spirit who is the revealer of the Scriptures. Now let's go back to our passage in John chapter 17. Having heard that from background, we realize that when Jesus is talking to the Father in this prayer, he is talking about the fact that he has veiled his glory, his essence, except for a couple of occasions, he has veiled his glory during the incarnation because he has come to display God to the human race and to reveal God to man. So that is why he prays, Restore to me the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So from all eternity, Jesus Christ has been undiminished deity, and at the instant of resurrection or ascension into heaven, then his full glory is manifest again. Now in these first five verses of the prayer, Jesus is relating to himself, relating to the Father, his own mission, his fulfillment and completion of that mission, and his future role at the right hand of God the Father. Now, that role today at the right hand of God the Father is called the session of Jesus Christ because he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And during his session, his present session in heaven, one of his primary tasks is intercession for the believer. He continuously prays for every single believer. And this is what we see in the uh, next section in the high priestly prayer here, starting in verse 6. He begins a prayer of intercession for the disciples and the coming church that will develop from the day of Pentecost on. Verse 6. He says, I manifested thy name to the men whom thou hast given to me. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest to me out of the world. This was his task. We can look at passages of Scripture such as John 1.18, where John tells us no man has seen God at any time. Thus, in the Old Testament, all of those revelations of God, when God appeared in the burning bush, when Isaiah saw God at the throne of God and he fell on his face and said, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. This was not God the Father who was seen. This was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. 
No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, another clear reference to Jesus as fully divine, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. This is the role of the second person of the Trinity to reveal to the human race what God is like. So how do we know what God is like? By learning about Jesus Christ and studying what the Scripture says about Him. That is the only way to know God. John 14.6, Jesus said to... Um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Thomas has asked him, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father. So Jesus equates knowledge of him with knowledge of the Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, From now on you know Him and have seen Him. How? By knowing Jesus. And how do you know Jesus? Only by studying the Scriptures, because that is the only revelation we have today of Jesus Christ, is what God the Holy Spirit revealed through the Scriptures. And then Jesus went on in His uh, question. Philip asked Him a question. Jesus, well, how do we know the Father? And Jesus answered him and says, Have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How much stronger can you say it? How much stronger an affirmation of deity can Jesus make? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. There's that subordination again. He is under the authority of God the Father, and He is fulfilling a task. But He is essentially identical to the Father and equal to the Father in His person. I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. So here we see the the, uh, tremendous fellowship, the intimacy between God the Father and God the Son, that they are identical in essence, but they are distinct in person. So Jesus says in his prayer in John 17:6, I manifested thy name. Now what does he mean when he says I manifested thy name? We have seen in the scriptures that this is an idiom. It doesn't mean a a title or a tag or something like today we talk think of something as a name, it has a label. That's not what name means in the scriptures. In in Jewish culture, a name was designed to reflect the essence of something. It said something about its nature, its character, its essence. And so, whenever the Scripture talks about name, it's talking about essence. This is why you get into a a verse like John uh, 3.18. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the what? in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This isn't saying, I believe there's a name, Jesus. And that's it. They were believing a label. It is the essence of Jesus as the God-man who came to earth to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So, verse 6, when Jesus says, I manifested thy name to the men who thou gavest me out of the world, it is a fulfillment of what John said in John 1.18. No man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten has revealed him. Jesus has revealed the essence of God to those whom 
God gave him. And there it's a reference specifically to the disciples. I have revealed to them your essence and your character. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. So here it is a clear reference to the fact that these eleven who are left, he's, Judas has already left to go betray him. And at the time that Jesus is praying, Judas is in is off center stage now. He's in the background, and he has gone, has gone to the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus. But these eleven have kept thy word. They have put their faith and trust in Christ alone. They are saved. Judas was not. Then we come to verse 7. Now they, that is the disciples, have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. This is the perfect active of indicative of gnosko here. They have come to know. Now there's two different words that are used in the Greek for knowledge. One is oida, and oida often refers to, when there's a distinction between oida and gnosko, oida often refers to sort of a, uh, an intuitive knowledge. Gnosko refers to a knowledge where they, you, something you've come to learn through study or instruction. So the word gnosko is used here because Jesus has clearly taught the disciples about God and about himself. They have come to know. How did they come to know? Because Jesus sat down and taught them. They didn't go out in the wilderness and fast for five or six weeks and have some kind of spiritual experience. They didn't go through some sort of ascetic exercises. Jesus specifically taught them and gave them information about himself, his mission, and about God the Father. So he says, they have come to know, that is through the learning process, that everything thou hast given me is from thee. And then he comes to verse 8, which reads, For the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. Now we have to stop here a minute because there is a difficulty in the understanding and translating the original Greek in the connection of verse 8 to verse 7. I want you to look up here on the screen and I've put the two verses, John 17.7 7 and John 17.8 up there from the King James Version. Now, verse 7 reads, Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, period. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, semicolon, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, comma, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now, one of the things that must be done in translation is decide how to punctuate in English. The original Greek had no punctuation. In, in the Greek language, you, you punctuate usually through your syntax. It is something that is inferred. It is not something that is overt. They did not have periods and semicolons and things of that nature as we do. Now, the King James sh- shows verse 7 as an independent sentence and then begins verse 8 as a new sentence with a capital F for 4. Now, this gets into something a little technical. 
I don't want to lose anybody on this, so we'll take it real simple. The King James translators had a tendency to try to make every verse an independent sentence. So they, try, they do this time and time again. But what we find in the Greek is that verse 8 begins with a hati clause, H-O-T-I in the Greek, which is a usually translated, it's a causal participle, it's usually translated because or for. Now here we run into a problem, and that is in the translation and understanding of a causal sentence here. And let me put something up here in English to help you understand the difference. Put a series of uh, words up here. I ate lunch because it is 2 p.m. I am not hungry. Now, how are we going to trend to punctuate those sentences? Now, we can do it this way. We can start off and say, I ate lunch, period. That makes that an independent statement. And then, in this, the, the rest of it would be one sentence, because it is 2 p.m., I am not hungry. Now, what that, that has the meaning that I ate lunch, and then, when, in English, what ha- if you have an independent clause or a subordinate clause starting with because then it modifies the, set, the main clause down here. So it should be, I am not hungry because it is 2 p.m. I ate lunch. I am not hungry because it is 2 p.m. That is different from saying, I ate lunch because it is 2 p.m., period. I am not hungry. You see, if you punctuate it that way, I am not hungry then is a conclusion, or a type of conclusion Independent of the statement, I ate lunch because it is 2 p.m. So you have two different meanings conveyed by how you punctuate the sentence. And in Greek, it is extremely rare of the 400. some odd usages of hati with the causal meaning, it is only used, it's used less than ten times where it begins the clause. So when we come to a passage like John 17, 7 and 8, the causal statement needs to go with the uh, verse 8 needs to go with verse 7. Now I know I've just fried your brains too early on Sunday morning for that, so let me read it to you. The New American Standard even messes it up. There the New American Standard translates them as independent clauses, but the period should really come after the them in verse 8. For example, right down here. This is where the period should be. Jesus says, Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee, because the words... See, that shouldn't be a four. That's too soft. It should be, Because the words which thou gavest me I have given to them. In other words, how is it that the disciples came to know Jesus? Because the words which, I gave, which you gave me I have given 
to them. Now, the reason I want to emphasize that is because we live in an age when people don't want to be taught anything from the Word of God. We live in an age, we live in an anti-rational age. The postmodern age is characterized primarily by intuition and emotion. People want to think they can just intuit what God is like and what His characteristics are and what He expects of us, that we don't need to go to the Scriptures, that we don't need to go to written words and to spend time exegeting the original languages of Scripture, looking at grammar, looking at syntax, taking this apart as I have this morning is not important. Let's just get together. Let's sing some songs that are very... Uh, that are very stimulating songs that are that uh, that uh, are uplifting and hear uh, an encouraging message that focuses on some wonderful story, so we can all leave and feel somewhat uplifted about God, and then we can say, "Wasn't it good to be there this morning? I just feel so close to God." That's not what the Scripture presents. Jesus says the way they came to know me is because I taught them. And he doesn't use the word logos, which emphasizes words. He uses, the, he uses a different word, rhema, which indicates teaching. It's the spoken word. It is instruction. He says they came to know me because I instructed them with the teaching, the words that you gave me. God communicates through words. That's Thoughts are formed on the basis of words. If you have a vocabulary of ten words, you can't think very deeply about anything. If you have a, ver- a vocabulary of a hundred words, then you may be able to survive. Apparently that's true for some people. But you need a more technical vocabulary if you're going to have a success at anything in life. And if you're going to understand God, then there is a technical vocabulary that God has given us for understanding Him. And we find many of those words in the Scriptures, words like redemption, propitiation, sin, salvation, all of these are words that are found in the Scriptures, and some of them are words that were coined by the writers of Scripture. Paul himself coins a couple of words in describing salvation and other doctrines in order to more precisely communicate about God. So words are important. That's why I take the time to exegete. I spend my time studying the original languages. I don't spend much time in the English text. I spend most of my time uh, studying the English and the Hebrew of the, I mean the Greek of the New Testament, Hebrew of the Old Testament, so that we can come to a proper understanding of what the Scripture says. If you don't understand it correctly, then your application is going to be all wrong. So we always have to start with the correct understanding of Scripture and then apply from there. Another thing that I want to point out and emphasize in this is that Jesus, how did Jesus teach the disciples? It was on a regular basis. He taught them day in and day out. It wasn't just once a week. It wasn't just on Sunday morning. But it was... He, he built into them a total way of thinking. Today we have this idea that somehow I can learn about God and I can renovate my thinking just by showing up at church on Sunday morning. And that is uh, patently false. I mean, you can't learn enough in an, even an hour 
on Sunday morning to really do the job. It needs to be an inculcation. There needs to be repetition again and again and again. That's why we have Wednesday night Bible class. That's why we have a tape ministry. is so that you can get the tapes and you can take those tapes and you can listen to them again and again so that you can come to understand these concepts and these ideas and begin to think about God the way He has described Himself to us. That's why we don't charge for tapes. The tape ministry is based on a grace principle. The Word of God should never be for sale. We offer these tapes free of charge, and so far the tape ministry does pretty well, but every now and then the contributions fall short, and when that happens, sometimes we have to limit our tape output. But I firmly believe that we should never charge for tapes, and that if people are really positive to the Word of God, then they will support the tape ministry, the Internet ministry, these other ministries with their, with their contributions so that the Word of God and doctrine can go out. If God doesn't supply those financial resources, then we'll just shut down those ministries because obviously people aren't positive and they don't want to know the truth. But when people are positive, God always supplies the resources so that these ministries can continue. And right now we're running a little behind in the tape ministry, but the Lord will make that up. I have no doubt that somehow uh, in the future that those contributions are going to come in so that that ministry can continue. The response that we're getting is, is incredible, but sometimes it, it takes a little while before everything catches up, but it'll be exciting to see that. I think last year we always, we ended up in the black and we always do. God always supplies the finances and God always supplies the hearers. But the point is that people need doctrine daily. You're kidding yourself if you think you don't need the truth and you don't need to hear it day in and day out. We all need it. We have to be continuously reminded of the truth of God's Word. And Jesus taught the disciples. He says, the words which you gave me. This is not just abstract thought. This isn't just uh, coincidental teaching, it is what God designed from eternity past to be communicated to the disciples. The words which you gave me, I have given to them, and then in the sentence. And then Jesus goes on, and we have three independent clauses. They received them, that indicates that they believed what I taught them. Then you go to the next step. They understood that I came forth from you. They start off by believing the words, and as a result of that, they understand. See, you you increase your understanding of doctrine incrementally. Jesus said, if you don't understand what you're given, then I'm not going to advance your the level of revelation to you. It's going to come incrementally. So if we, if we reject the little bit that we have, we'll never advance. And the problem with some people is that they think, well, I want to understand it all before I accept any of it. And Jesus says, well, you've got to grow. It's just like anything else. You can't walk out of here and walk into a physics class or walk into a calculus class and expect to understand what's being taught. You have to start with basics. And once you understand basics, then you can move on to more advanced concepts. And so we advance line upon line, precept upon precept. The words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and they understood that I came forth from thee, and then they believed that thou didst send me. So there's a progression of ideas there. First of all, they understood that Jesus was the expression, the incarnation, the revealer of God as his role as the second person of the Trinity. 
Then they advanced to the fact that God had a plan and he did send them. Now, verse 9, Jesus says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Now, the world is a technical term for unbelievers in, this, in, in the Gospel of John. It is not a term for believers. There's a distinction between believers and the term world, which refers to, comes from the Greek word cosmos, which relates to the whole orderly system of thinking that is set forth by Satan. And when Jesus prays, he doesn't pray for unbelievers. That may come as a shock to you, but Jesus is concerned about those who believe on him, and he's not concerned about those who don't. He says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world. Now, Jesus' concern for unbelievers is salvation. That's not the focus of this prayer. That's why Jesus is not praying for unbelievers. He says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. This is talking about believers. Verse 10, And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I don't know how Jesus could use more precise language to make it clear that he is one with the Father. He claims to be undiminished deity in true humanity. He is identical with God. The Pharisees clearly understood it, for when he said, I and the Father are one, they picked up stones to stone him. Now, it's silly how people want to think that, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He was just a good man. Well, a good man doesn't tell people they're the only way to heaven. I mean, he's either lying or he's crazy, but he's not a good man. Jesus claimed to be one with God because he is one with God and he is the only way to salvation. Verse 11, he says, I am no more in the world. That is, here he's using it in the sense of, uh, of being on the earth. I am no more in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. That is, believers are still in the world. We're still surrounded by the cosmic system and false teaching. And he says, I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, this is not a unity of essence, but a unity of plan and purpose and role. He glorifies God we saw earlier by doing what God said back in verse 4. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. Now in verse 10 he says, <clears throat> he says in verse 10, And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine. I have been glorified in them, and I am no more in the world, yet they are in the world. I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name that is, in your essence, by means of your essence, your power, which you gave me that they may be one. See, there, our role, as Jesus' role is, is to glorify God. Now, that unity is a unity of purpose, not a unity in essence. He is not saying here, I am one with you, but I am one because we have the same purpose. I came to do what you, the job, the mission that you gave me to do. So his prayer is twofold here for believers that we are kept. This is a reference to eternal security. Jesus continues to pray this prayer, and his prayers are answered that we are kept in his power, by his essence. We do not lose our salvation. Our salvation is not based on who and what we do, who and what we are, 
but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did. So he prays for our salvation and for the keeping of us in that salvation, and so we can never lose our eternal salvation. Once you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, you are saved for all eternity, and at the point of physical death, you will be absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 12 he says, when I, While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name. So it is Jesus who is holding us. Remember he said, We are in the Father's hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And we are in His hand. No one can snatch us out of His hand. So we are doubly held. We are kept by the omnipotence of God in our salvation. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, that is, by means of your character, by means of your essence, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them, that is, of the disciples, perished, but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now, the term son of perdition relates to Judas. That is his title. And the Greek word there, translated perdition, comes from the noun apolumi, which is the same word to perish. It's the same word that is used in John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him should not what perish. So the term there for perdition is the term that refers to someone who does not have eternal salvation. So the very title, Son of Perdition, indicates that Judas was lost. He's the only one who's lost. Why? Because he did not believe in Jesus Christ. Not because he committed some sin that was unforgivable. The only sin that Jesus Christ did not pay for on the cross is the sin of rejection of Him. Remember John 3.18. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already. So what is the only condition for condemnation? Not believing in Jesus Christ. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Not because he committed some sin. Not because he committed heinous crimes. Not because he didn't join the right church but it is because he did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the only condition the Bible presents for salvation. So once you put your faith alone in Christ alone, that you you have eternal salvation. Now, we're going to need to stop there because starting in verse 13, Jesus is going to enter into an entirely different discussion about what is necessary to for the believer in terms of his spiritual growth. And we don't have time to cover the rest of this down to verse, uh, <clears throat> verse through verse 21. So we'll come back and pick that up next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that your word is so clear about our salvation, our relationship with you. That you sent your son, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who was undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person. And that he, because of his qualifications, was able to go to the cross and there he paid the penalty as our substitute for our sin on the cross. Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And that he is the only way of salvation. Throughout the Scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, there is only one way to obey you. No matter what the situation is, you always outline the one condition for salvation. At the flood, the only condition was to be on the ark. At 
other times at the Exodus, the only condition was to spread the blood on the doorpost. So there is always only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without faith, without hope, without eternal life, that you would make it clear to them at this moment that the only condition for salvation is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we know that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So the only condition is faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is no other alternative. Now, Father, we pray for those who are believers here that we would be challenged by the things that we have studied, encouraged by the great Savior that we have who was able to pay the penalty for every sin and that the issue now is not our sin but our spiritual growth, that we may grow and advance to spiritual maturity and thereby fulfill your plan for our lives that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.